Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode we review one picture book and one chapter book. We started off with the books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchable at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchablePod and on Instagram we are at eventhetrunchable. Happy New Year, listener! This month our episode is about winter wheelies. Learning to ride a bike is a huge milestone for lots of children and soon after Christmas there's a bunch of kids out on new sets of wheels so we thought it'd be the perfect time to dust off some bike books so we've got so we've got a lovely recommendation from Ruth Amadzai Kemp who's a friend of the show who I'm trying to get on Ruth we're doing your book please come on sometime this year we would love you to come on Ruth translated Apple Cake and Baklava which we did ages ago now yeah. um, that we both really liked. Um, so she has recommended Bicycling to the Moon by Timo Parvella. A classic Finnish children's literature and it's translated into English by Ruth Orbaum. Uh, but first we've got a picture book by poet Simon Mole. Would you like to tell us about it, Matt, since you went to the launch? Yeah, I did. I went to the launch of this. This is his first kid's book. And it's called I Love My Bike. I mean, it's basically just about a little girl learning to ride a bike and sort of struggling with it at first and not getting to grips with it and sort of like getting a bit sort of... Yeah, frustrated and hurt and not wanting to do it anymore. She comes off it but then gets back on and learns and, and that's kind of it. I mean, it's it's really driven by the rhythm and the language. It's a picture book in verse. Yeah, and Simon's an excellent poet and so good with rhythm. That, like, really is his thing. And he's so good with kids. Like, at the the launch was sort of... Because I, I, <laughs> I saw it was coming up, I thought, oh, that'll be good. It'll be good to do on the podcast. So I booked a ticket for the launch. And then I got there and I was like, I'm not sure I'm supposed to be here because it was all kids and their parents. <laughs> and it was lovely in the end. It was really good fun. Um, uh, but yeah, it was like sort of language games with kids. And I think Simon does this like once a fortnight. He does like an online poetry workshop for mm-hmm. kids and sort of had loads of little games where they were like generating loads of different sort of similes and um, and adjectives and kids like making up their own imaginary bikes and what would be on them and stuff. So it's got this real energy. And the book carries that as well. It's yeah. just this proper bouncy. Yeah bouncy energy is there a bit that i can maybe read out just to get a sense of the oh you should the rhythm of the language and the houses all blur and the trees all blur and i see myself reflected in the window i'm a blur and it's red so it's fast and it's red and my arms start to judder so fast and the bell on the bars does a wobble and then i do a wobble stay straight wheels there's a tangle in my tummy and I wobble, hey, hey, and they won't stay straight too fast. And I wobble, hey, hey, Dad shouts, hey, hey, look out. It sounds like pushing your feet down on the pedals. Yeah. It reminded me of Skimbleshank's The Railway Cat by T.S. Eliot. Do you know that one? Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Vaguely, I think I read that ages ago. Which is a poem that sounds like a locomotive. I'll, I'll read you a bit. 
There's a whisper down the line at 11.39 when the night mail's are ready to depart, saying Skimble where is Skimble as he gone to hunt the thimble we must find him or the train can't start. All the guards and all the porters and the station master's daughters they are searching high and low, saying Skimble where is Skimble for unless he's very nimble then the night mail just can't go. That's one of my favourite poems from being a kid. That's a poem about a train that sounds like a train and this is a poem about a bike that sounds like a bike. Yeah. That's something really cool that you can do with poetry. And I think as well, like, it's sort of important to point out as well that he doesn't get stuck in his own rhythm either. Like, I think even in that bit I read, you can you can see that there's, like, a bit of flexibility in it. Yeah. And, like, throughout the book, like, it slows down, it speeds up. Like, it's got, like, a really strong kind of plot structure to it as well for being kind of driven by the rhythm and being a dead simple plot. It's got, like, it's got an arc through it. Yeah. And the rhythm kind of drives that as well. Like it's yeah, it's really it's really lovely. Mm. Um, I'm aware that we haven't said who the illustrator is. Who's the illustrator, Matt? So the illustrator is Sam Usher. The illustrations are really lovely. Yeah, how would you describe them? Um, well, I think they're watercolor. I think what I really like about them is they're sort of blended with the words really well on the page. Mm. So and like so that bit that I just read the words are kind of snaking in between the pictures. Yeah. I mean, there's quite a lot of blank page, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. So you've got these sort of really popping illustrations, but there's a lot of space as well. There's one really lovely illustration where she's pushed her bike up to the top of a hill, and then you get this view of the whole town. Yeah. Having lived in Sheffield through lockdown, it reminded us of Sheffield because of where Sheffield sits, like the whole city yeah. sits in a valley. You get these various viewpoints where you just see like the whole city spread out below you. It's just sort of like, I guess, the bottom sort of four inches of the page is this really lovely kind of quite detailed cityscape. And then just this whole expanse of white and then a sweep of blue for the sky right across the top. Mm. And I think the only words on that page is, wow. We can see everything from here. Yeah. So it's just it's this really spacious feel, like the words and the pictures are both given loads of room to pop and breathe. Yeah. Um, which is really nice. I like that when the poem says that the red of the bike blurs, the image blurs a little bit as well, the red sort of bleeding out of yeah. the bike. I mean, red yeah. for the bike is a really good, is a really good choice. It's fast because yeah. it's red. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course it is. That's true about yeah. bikes. It's also yeah. true about stripes on your trainers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My favourite bit, I don't know if you can find the line while I'm talking about it, is the bit where she's talking about her bike sometimes gets lazy. Oh no, sometimes my bike gets lazy and I have to push it up a big, huge hill. I mean, there's a real thing about agency in this, isn't there? Because you yeah. so you've got that like she's in control, and there's a bit as well that's sort of specifically saying like I get to choose where I go. Like yeah. Dad doesn't choose, I choose. I can turn left here, I can turn right here. Let's find out what's around this corner. You know, mm. like that's the main thing in this book for me in terms of like the feel. Is it's that well, like you were saying before, like it's your first bit of independence yeah. as a kid is like yeah. having your own bike and you can go where you want to go yeah but i think on the other side of that there is the omnipresence of the dad he's letting her lead but he's a very yeah. gentle presence as well 
he he pushes her a tiny bit like when she comes off the bike and she's hurt and he says come on let's go she, you know he's he's pushing her a little bit um i think it's just quite a nice depiction of a parent child relationship as well i think that's a really nice point actually that yeah he is always there kind of guiding yeah because there are these books and i think they're great books about children that only have the child in that are sort of set in this fantasy world where the child is independent but this is not that like this is a realistic book that depicts a realistic and healthy parent-child relationship. And I think that's really important as well. Yeah. And it's lovely, this bit at the end when she comes off her bike, her dad is saying to her, do you recognise where we are? We've driven past here before in the car. Like, I love that idea as well. Of like, I think that is what's great about a bike, like as an adult as well, is that you see things differently from if you were driving. Like, you yeah. see places more. She's like, this is mine now because... Yeah. Because I came here on my bike, like yeah. I've got an ownership over this place. Yeah. That remains true. Like that's one of the things that I still love about cycling now mm. is that you're sort of in the environment that you're traveling in. Yeah. Yeah, you're not really just passing through in a sealed yeah. box. You're out there experiencing it. I don't think it means like I have ownership of this place in like a capitalistic way, you know, then it's not anybody else's or anything like that. Yeah, no, of course not. But as in, yeah, like it makes sense in my life now. Well, and also there's a feeling of responsibility that comes with that, I think. Like, so I, I don't have a bike. I haven't had a bike as an adult, um, but I do walk everywhere. And I feel connected to the park. I pick up litter in there if I see some, because it's my park. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. It's my park around the corner and I care. Even if somebody else hasn't cared enough to put this in a bin, I will. yeah. Because it's ours, and we live here, and everybody who uses this space deserves for it to be nice. Yeah. I think this is where it's such a success of a kid's book as well. And I think this is where, like, time and time again, like, doing this, we see that some of the best kid's books are written by good poets. Yeah. Because it's the same skill in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's so sparse and short, but, like... It's huge, like there's so much space to think about so many other things. Because this isn't explicitly like an environmental story. No. But it lets your head go there, it lets your head go that way. And like, I think it's that skill of sparseness. Yeah. Like, it's got just the right amount in it. Yeah, I think it's really, really lovely. Yeah. It's fab. It's nice and big as well, which I think is what you want from a kid's book. It's like easily the size of a large laptop (laughs) do you know what i mean (laughs) do you know what it is it's the right size to have a small child in your lap and be bouncing them along with the rhythm of the poem and have your arms all around them and holding the book open and it will fill their entire view yeah that's nice yeah 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 Yeah. so who's it for Well, yeah, I mean, as you say, like dead little kids for the rhythm and the bounce and then maybe slightly older kids who are like just starting to learn to ride their bike. Like, Mm. it's quite good at sort of dispelling the fear of it. Yeah, but also acknowledging the frustration of it because it is frustrating to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For poets as well or anyone like Mm -hmm. a poet and wanting to transition into writing a kid's book, it's just like a really good example of that. Are we ready to move on? I So I was at a puppet show with Ruth last summer and she talked to me about this book. I told her that we were considering doing an episode about bikes and she went, you must do Bicycling to the Moon, it's foreign and gay. And I was like, right, <laughs> these, are, these are things we love on the show. 
I'm taking that recommendation and running with it. And what it is, it's a collection of short stories about a dog called Barker and a cat called Purdy. Purdy is the type of cat who gets enthusiasms for things, passing fads and trends and ideas. At the full moon, Purdy notices that the moon makes this reflection on the water that looks like a path. If I could bike on it, I'd go fast enough that I'd get straight to the moon and then I'd never want for anything ever again. I'd have everything I wanted. I'd be the happiest cat in the world. So he puts this idea to Barker and Barker's like, whenever you want to buy something, it's going to make you the happiest cat in the world and you're never going to want for anything ever again. You can't even ride a bike. And he's like, but I could learn. So Barker saves up all his money and buys Purdy a bike. And Purdy is not good at the bike, but he still wants to do it. Casually mentions that he can't swim. Just oh, yeah, he can't yeah. swim. <laughs> so oh, I really hope this goes well, because I can't swim. At which point Barker decides, maybe I'll come along with you then. So they both got on the bike and off they went. Purdy steered and Barker sat on the rack. Faster and faster they sped. The dark lake approached at a furious pace. Up ahead, the silver path gleamed like a runway. When they hit the shoreline, the bicycle took off. It glided up the silver path towards the moon that shone above. The bike rose and rose until it swerved and plunged into the lake, shattering the moonbeam path into a thousand pieces. Then the surface became calm again. There was complete silence until two figures suddenly popped up. Barker hauled his best buddy Purdy to shore while the bike sank into the dark depths of the lake. Purdy and Barker clambered up to the sky-blue house on the hill. They sat in the garden swing and gazed at the incredibly beautiful full moon. Good thing you wanted to come along, or I'm sure I would have drowned, Purdy said. Yes, indeed, said Barker. It was silly to think we could ride up the path to the moon. Purdy said. After a moment, he added. I think we were too heavy together. It might work if we each had our own bike. Two bikes. Barker just laughed. It's one of those children's books that's... It reminded me very powerfully of Winnie the Pooh and Wind in the Willows and maybe, like, on television, things like Hector's House. And it's just about their little life. It doesn't have really big adventures or overarching plot lines or huge drama or danger they're just these very cozy bedtime story sized stories but it does link together there is like a a line through so the line is the seasons more than anything else i think yeah and then the, the chapter about the bike is referred to throughout the book but you really could read them out of sequence and it would be fine i think one of the places it interestingly differs from those other things that I referenced, especially Winnie the Pooh, is that things like Winnie the Pooh, um, everybody's very polite in Winnie the Pooh and everybody's very nice and considerate of each other all the time. (laughs) And like, this is like an edgy Winnie the Pooh. This is like, people are actually not always very nice to each other. Not very nice at all. For the first half of reading this, I was like, okay, cool, I don't totally get what this is about. I think it was around when, um, what's the duck called? Quackstrom. Connie Quackstrom. <laughs> it's like, this is a book about social niceties. And this yes. is like, 
well-to-do suburban sort of this is how we interact with each other and how kind of thin that is. Yeah. That was my favourite chapter was when Quackstrom shows up and her thing is that she's a hoarder and she hoards other people's <laughs> things. So they're both like Purdy and Bart are bickering as they do and realising that loads of their stuff is missing and it's that they've lent it to Connie. And so Barker's all like, right, well, I'm going to invite around and we're going to have words and I'm going to be firm but fair. And Purdy's just like, I think literally says, I'm looking forward to seeing this. Yes. Just sort of like <laughs> sits back with the popcorn. And Connie comes up and she's brought a cake. Which she's baked in their tin. Barker says makes a comment which isn't directly confrontational but basically gives the game away of what he wants to confront her about yeah and then connie starts doing this whole thing of how wonderful it is to have them as friends and how much Mm. she values them and how nice it is to share cake with them and it's like right on the line i was reading it going like who's in the wrong here because obviously they immediately start feeling really guilty about what they have to do and i was like is she just playing them like it's right on the line she starts admiring Purdy's painting. Yeah, and then they let her off with it completely, and she ends up leaving with more of their stuff. <laughs> After she leaves, Barker realises that he never has told Purdy that he thinks his paintings are good. Yeah, so it brings them closer together, yeah. doesn't it? So it's like, oh, I do, I do actually think that, you know, that your paintings are really good. And you can have my bone for your still life. Oh, that's okay, because Connie's borrowed my paints. (laughs) Which means that I've got time to clear the driveway of snow like you wanted me to. Oh, that's okay, Connie's also borrowed the the snow shovel. (laughs) So there's a lot of that. There is a lot of that. It is quite edgy. I found it really, really funny. And I read this aloud with my partner. And I would highly, highly recommend you read this book with your romantic partner. Because I guarantee one of you is Barker and one of you is Purdy. I don't think it's a particularly healthy relationship. Oh, it's not. It's not. It's... (laughs) They're so codependent. Yes. But also, I think, probably really, really common of, like, most marriages. Yes, exactly. I think that's what's brilliant about it. Like... The bit that really got me with this, that was like shudder down the spine, like, oh, guys, you need to take a break from each other, was um, Purdy decided that he was going to migrate south for winter with the geese. I want to talk about this chapter. Um, It's brutal. So the chapter was called Migrating for the Winter, and it starts exactly the way that a similar chapter starts in Wind in the Willows. Do you remember when Mole is watching the geese fly south and going, oh, don't leave, guys, I'll be so bored? It's the same. Purdy watches the swans fly south for the winter and it's yeah. getting cold and then there's really beautiful description of the fingers of the frost coming up through the floorboards of the house yeah. and poking him in his back when he's sleeping. Yeah, Purdy has SAD, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Like... He just has this impending sense of dread and he starts telling Barker that he's going to fly south for the winter like the swans and Barker does not take him seriously he's like yeah 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 whatever and he goes about his jobs you know like patching the holes in the floor and like insulating the windows and redoing the roof like Barker loves a change of season and Barker loves a job so he's doing his little jobs and Barker feels really fulfilled in this he's like it's going to be so cozy in here in the winter it's going to be fine we'll sit it out don't worry about it and Purdy keeps saying I'm going to go 
for the winter. <laughs> and he's like, but you can't fly. What are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to get a boat. I'm going to go where the swans go. And Barker keeps ignoring this and not paying any attention to it for like a week. <laughs> and Purdy packs a suitcase, um, calls a taxi and goes. <laughs> yeah. And Barker's just like, well, surely he's about to come back, right? He's about to come back. He's he's, de- he's definitely not doing this. What? He waits all day. He's like, he's going to come back this evening, right? He'll be, he'll be back for his dinner. He's not back for his dinner. Um, yeah. And then it's like he learns, he has to learn to cope by himself in the winter and he feels really bad. He starts getting down the same way that Purdy did, yeah. not being able to get out of bed. Yeah, yeah. Like that bit's quite dark. That's quite depression-y, isn't it? Yeah. And then after two weeks, Purdy comes back and they never talk about... That's the worst bit. They never talk about it. They just don't mention it. It's like, oh, guys. But every winter after that, Barker feels a bit sad. (laughs) (laughs) Ruth sold this to me as foreign and gay. Is it queer? It's a really good question. Um... Like, yes, I guess. I didn't read it as that. Because I think initially I assumed while reading it that Purdy was female. Right, and that's really interesting as well. Yeah. On a gender front that people have this assumption. Like, people really have a feeling that, like, dogs are boys and cats are girls. Yeah. But also those are the stereotypes that it plays into. Yes. Purdy's the kind of, like, hippie mom sitting around the house painting and Barker's this bedraggled sort of middle-aged weather-beaten husband who's spending as much time as possible in the shed and kind of grumbling. Right, so I think if Purdy was a girl, this would be kind of sexist. It would be edging that way, potentially. Um, But what with Purdy being a boy, is it a little bit mean about, like, catty gay men? You could read it that way. There is a bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just talk about how brilliant the illustrations are? Yeah, completely. So it's like pen, pen and ink, I think? Yeah. Um. So I, I want to name check the illustrator. It's Verpi Talviti. Right at the end, so the, like the last picture of this book, I think you've got Barker and Purdy sitting together under a tree and Purdy's tail comes up and there's like a couple of flies and it makes like a yin and yang sign. Mm. And then I was like, ah, maybe this is why it isn't completely grabbing me because that picture then for me, that's like the message of the book is supposed to be opposites attract and sometimes people might seem like they're not great together, but love wins out in the end. I think that is the intended message, yes. Sure. And I get that and that kind of works, but I just like, and I mean, this is again, listener, (laughs) this is me. Right, but I sort of wish it had leaned into the darkness more. Mm. My favourite picture is in the chapter about the tomatoes. It's where Barker's t- prize-winning tomato has gone missing. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to try and describe it, and then maybe you could take a picture of the page and we could share it because I think you really got to look at it. So yeah. he's been growing tomatoes for the Flower and Produce show, essentially, and he's got this big, beautiful tomato that he goes and measures every day. He parts the leaves and finds it's gone. And the way this is illustrated, it's a clump of tomato leaves and some tiny tomatoes and Barker's face and then a hole in the universe. 
<laughs> there's not even. Hang there's on. not. I don't remember this at all. Wait one sec. I'm bringing the book through because we all know how I love holes in the universe. We need to. We need to check. There's this not out. even leaves or a background to the picture where the tomato should be. It's just blank, like there's a hole in the book. Oh yeah. That's my favourite picture. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I think it's so good. It's so funny. Oh, God, because it's just the absence of that tomato. It's the absence of a tomato. She's drawn the absence of a tomato. Yeah, that is a good one. The sadness in Barker's eyes here, I know. There's a lot of really lovely full-page illustrations as well. I'm thinking yeah. of the one where they're in the boat and the sea is just all like back-to-back tessellated fish. Yes, and similarly, what I'm looking at now, um, <laughs> yeah, again, it's a really lovely bit. I am, I am like the more we talk about this, the more like this is great actually. When Barker's struggling because his dog side is coming out, yes. it blurs the anthropomorphization, so he's sort of raking up all of the leaves in the garden into piles because they need to be raked up before the storms come. And he's sort of dead antsy all day and Paige's like, what's the matter with you? He's like, I don't know, I just need to do something. And then, and he just sort of like disappears for a bit and then shoots out and starts like diving into the piles of leaves and just going <laughs> round one by one, di- diving into the leaves and like whooping and yelling like, woo, yeah! That is a dog with the zoomies, that is. Yeah, but I just love that. It's like, something's coming. I don't know what it is. Like, I really want to get these leaves in, but also, I can't get them to jump in. <laughs> so the picture of that one is sort of full page one, and it's their little blue house sitting on top of the hill, but the whole hill is a pile of leaves. Yeah, I think the art is absolutely gorgeous. Can we yeah. move on to Parallels with Winnie the Pooh? Because I've done a bit of a deep dive there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, let's do that. So I'm going to send you a couple of pictures okay. in the chat. And I will also put these on the social media. Again, I love your disregard for this being an auditory experience. So as I was reading this, I was very powerfully reminded of Winnie the Pooh. And I was thinking, like, am I just being really Anglo-centric? Is there a completely separate, um, you know, tradition of this in... Finnish books that I just don't know about and of course it's entirely possible but then it actually references Winnie the Pooh explicitly yeah. and I'm like oh no you know that you're being Winnie the Poohish okay so have you opened those two images I sent you <laughs> yeah it's the same joke could you describe them in Bicycling to the Moon there is a bit where Purdy climbs up the attic <laughs> and eats all of the food and then climbing back down gets stuck because the entrance to the attic has shrunk considerably since he went up there. Yeah. And yeah, so there's a picture of... Just Purdy's bum hanging out of the attic. Yeah, hanging out of the attic, stuck, which is exactly the same picture, which is, I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with. It's so famous of um, Pooh coming round Rabbit's house and eating so much that he then tries climbing out of the hole and gets stuck. And yeah. it's the same image of his rear end halfway through the entrance hole to, to Rabbit's house. Yes, yeah, it's structured completely the same, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. nice though, like a little love letter to... Yeah, that's how it feels. I, I'm not at all argu- arguing this is plagiarism. I think no. this is like a really nice little tribute to Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, I like that it's kind of, it's it's set in the real world. 
Yeah. Despite being these anthropomorphized characters in this sort of clearly fantasy setting. Yeah. It felt quite retro to me in a way. I feel like books like this do not get written very much anymore. There was a big vogue for them, like Winnie the Pooh, like Wind in the Willows, these sort of domestic anthropomorphized animal stories mm. that were really suitable for a bedtime story, that they're all like a little standalone story. They're all just the right length. They're really cute and safe. Yeah. I don't know that at least in the English language or in the UK, we're writing lots of those anymore. When is that? Oh, so this is only from... 2009. 2009. Right, yeah. Feels retro, doesn't it? It is. Yeah, it feels it, like I was expecting that to be like from around 1980. And even then it would be kind of harking back. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So it does feel like it's sort of referencing the Moomins a bit as well in the sort of setting. Hmm. Hmm. I suppose it's the Scandinavian setting and the, the nature writing and the writing about all the little chores that keep the house ticking over. Yeah. And all the things you have to do to look after a home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's half halfway between Winnie the Pooh and the Last Moomins book in terms of yeah. existential angst. Yes. If we were to do an but... existential angstometer. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that that's a that's a feature we've got. Where is it on the scaryometer? It's pretty low, isn't it? Yeah. Like you know, accounting aside the sort of horror of the emptiness of the universe, which I think you have to sort of go a few layers down and read it that way. I think on the surface, it's not very scary. It's not scary at all. No. I mean, it's emotionally scary in places, I suppose, when they have conflict. And this is a whole book about their conflicts. But even then, it's never that, like, it's never really sustained, is it? No. There's always plenty of reminders that they love each other. Yeah. yeah. And that they will look after each other. It's a zero or a one, I yeah. guess. Like, right down there. Give it a one. Okay. Hey, I think you've talked me round. I think it's good. I don't know. I oh. really I can't put my finger on what it is that, that holds us back. But no, it is, um, yeah, it's great. It does, it does all the things that kids' books are great at doing. Yeah. So who is this book for, Matt? Um, do you know what it's great for? Mm. Is not having a very good attention span yeah it's really good for that yeah really short chapters and in the chapter you've had a whole story yeah i really like Um, that about it perfect bedtime story material but actually because of that really easy like i read it in a couple of hours like you can just plow through it like it's just little little chunks little bites feels very nibbly doesn't it as a book i'll just do another little story i'll just another little one yeah I think definitely good for like adults wanting something to read to their kids that is also going to be entertaining for you as an adult. Mm-hmm. It's for kids as young as three, I think, mm-hmm. up to about ten, I guess. Yeah, ten at a push. Yeah, maybe nine. Yeah. If you're looking to get into Finnish children's literature, Timo Parvella is a giant of that. So that was episode 26 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. The first for 2022. Yay! (laughs) Once again, if you have any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or love now as a kid. Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod 
and on Instagram at even the trunchbull. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. Do you want to talk about the Christmas chapter? Sure. So, this is the Christmas chapter, and Purdy and Barker have had a lovely Christmas Eve so far. They've brought in the tree, they've made the dinner, um, Purdy has decorated the tree just so in his way. Yeah. He's very particular about... Where things go, yeah. Yeah. They've had the lovely dinner, and then it's time for presents, or so you might think. Can't you see I'm about to burst with excitement? I can see that, but I don't know why. What time is it? Present time! It's time to give me my present! Purdy's whiskers quivered, his eyes shone in the dark, and the tip of his tail flicked in circles. Barker tilted his head and looked at his friend. The longer he looked, the more agitated Purdy grew. But we agreed we weren't going to exchange presents this year. We were just going to enjoy a peaceful Christmas and good food, and that's what we've been doing. Do you mean... you don't mean... you haven't? Purdy couldn't finish his sentence. He was so upset as the truth began to dawn on him. But that's what we agreed. No presents. Not even a little surprise? <laughs> the kind you buy even when you've agreed not to. Nope. Didn't buy a single present. Not for you or for me. You can't mean that. You're just joking. Now stop it and give me my present or I'll explode, Purdy wailed. I only followed our agreement and you haven't bought me any presents either. But that's different. You never expect any. But you ought to know me better. Agreeing not to buy presents meant you didn't need to buy an excessive number, but surely you bought me something? Just a tiny little thing? <laughs> Maybe you hid one and forgot about it? That can happen. It's understandable, Purdy said hopefully. His voice sounded so pitiful and almost fearful. Barker regretted that he hadn't bought even a tiny present. So he just shrugged, turned and stoked the fire. Purdy slumped on the bench and couldn't find a thing to say. A moment passed, then another. Silent misery had replaced the festive atmosphere. It was as if someone had opened the door and let the spirit of Christmas escape. And of course that someone was Barker. Even though he knew he'd done nothing wrong, he still felt terrible. Yeah. Well read, by the way. I love your voices. I particularly love your Barker voice. This voice. Yeah. It's quite husky. It's quite, it hurts my throat, but it feels very doggy to me. Yeah, it's a good dog voice. <laughs>